brethren for uh, getting here early. That's good. You actually, you're getting here on time. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's start with a prayer. Our Father, again, we thank you for our marriages. We thank you for the uh, the way you have blessed us, and we pray that you continue to work and sharpen us uh, through the through the institution of marriage. Uh, we pray for uh, Mike uh, this morning that you would uh, bless him as he uh, guides us through this. In your name, Amen. And I'm going to ask you again and again. You know, this class, this room is very awkward. And it's particularly awkward for, for latecomers to come in, and it's hard for them to get down into the front. So if we can populate the front earlier, it's, it's better. Also, I will you'll note that we have writing on the board, which is not real clear. It's hard to see from the back. You, you'll be better if you come up front. Thank you all for attending. If you would like to do some additional reading on the side, I've made some copies of uh, actually two chapters from a book I've written on humility. One is Humility and Other Centeredness. If you'd like to just read this, it'll apply directly to marriage. And then another chapter in the book is on humility and marriage. There'll be an awful lot of overlap between this and what I'm going to teach you. But if you'd like to do some supplemental reading, these are here for your education. Let's start with this chart that is on the board here. And it sort of describes one of the saddest things I've ever seen or anyone could experience. And that is two people filled with bliss on their wedding day. Right? This is the happiest day of my life. That's often how the wedding day is crafted. Two people start best friends full of joy and they end up as enemies at worst. They might end up in divorce. I've done north of 120 weddings in my pastoral career. And sadly, uh, every wedding starts with this. Everybody's ecstatic and exceedingly happy to be married. Some, in fact, have ended down here. So it raises the question, what happened? How do you get from bliss and best friends at the altar, so to speak, to bitter enemies? How do you get there? And I ask the question because we're, all of our relationships are potentially on that trajectory if we're not doing the kinds of things the Bible says to prevent that. And so let's just diagnose, diagnose it. Here, here's the, here's the, uh, the sense of the diagram. This doesn't happen overnight, obviously. It happens as a result of a number of events that take place. Event, 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 event. And if you think about each event that contributes to the dissolution of the friendship, usually you have expectations that are laden into the event, and particularly expectations for my welfare. We innately ask, what's in this for me? Unless there's a work of grace keeping us from asking that question, the gospel frees us to be other-centered, so the way relationships actually are designed to work by the Lord is, if we're both asking what's best for you, good relationship is going to result. But innately, we're always thinking, what's, what's in this for me? There's expectations and events 
that are critical to uh, fracturing the friendship, then there's some sort of interpretation of that event. Uh, actions, words, motives, usually we're interpreting things that go on. And then down below, if there's poor communication, which could take the form of not talking, saying hurtful things, assigning motive or accusing, this event then greases the tracks sliding down this slope toward a bad relationship. Okay? So you have expectations, some sort of interpretation. Hey, I expected you to act this way. Why, why did you do that? And then assigning motive. If that event is not well processed by the couple, it becomes a rock in that sack that eventually collapses you. Okay? And then, through the course of these events, what often happens is a narrative develops and you, you craft a mental image of that other person. And obviously, if the relationship's going downhill, that is a negative view of that person. And another negative event, another poorly, a poorly resolved conflict just cements that narrative in your mind. So you begin to expect the worst from that person. So this narrative frames how you treat them with decreasing vulnerability. Who wants to be vulnerable with someone that's hurting you with increasing bitterness and often increasing manipulation. People will only uh, sustain so many of these without beginning to manipulate to get their way because we're innately wired to want our way, self-protection. More about that uh, later in the class. And again, the, har the farther this goes down, the harder, uh, harder and harder to reverse this. And you know, Satan sits on this. When your marriage is in a downward spiral, Satan sits on that. He just loves that because of what's at stake. A beautifully lived marriage, effectively gospel-resolved events like this reveal the glory of God, which Satan can't stand. Okay, so this is, this is a terrible... So, what you want to do is you want to diagnose at each of these events, diagnose those events with these questions. Was I for you in the way I responded? Was I acting in Jesus' name? Uh, was the cross my motivation in the way I treated you at that event? Could I be the problem? Humility always stops and asks, could I be the problem? Was I motivated by pride or humility in my attempt to deal with this event? And in what negative way did you experience me? Pride doesn't ask that question. Pride doesn't care. Pride is sort of blind to the way, the impact we have on other people. But humility asks, okay, this event that wasn't good for our relationship, how were you experiencing me in a, in a, a negative way, in a less identified way? These are the kinds of questions you tease out to diagnose these kinds of events. So may the Lord save us from this. Now, if you're, if you're a Christian and you're committed to your wedding vows and you're a member of the church and good standing, all that stuff, Lord willing, it never gets here, but you sort of get, you get on this slide here and you just end up, what did we say last week, two ships passing in the night? And that's not what the Lord has for our marriages. Okay? So, before I transition to the handout, thoughts or questions or observations about this, what am I missing? What would you want to add, subtract? Okay, let's go to the handout. 
Basically, what we're going to do for the rest of the class is room number one, we'll look at some assumptions. That's going to take about three minutes. And number two, we're going to tease out a series of questions that will help you, in fact, craft and nurture a vision for a gospel-centered bear. So, Roman number one, what are two assumptions I'm bringing to the class? I suspect you'll agree with both. The first is a biblical vision of anything is seen through this lens, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. I suspect most of you know that. If you've been at Wallace for any length of time, you've been taught that, you believe that. You assume that your Bible teachers and preachers are looking at Bible texts through this lens. As you read the Bible, you've been taught to look at the Bible through this lens. So basically, put any issue on the table. Abortion, marriage, giving, friendship, conflict resolution, whatever it is. Put any issue on the table. Should I cut my grass at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Put any issue on the table. We seek to understand the biblical perspective on that issue through this three, uh, basically it's bifocals. Creation. What did God, what does the fact that God created everything say about this issue? How is it designed to function? One thing we're going to look at today about marriage is God designed marriage. We learn a lot about it from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This is a fallen world. How does sin affect that issue? How does the doctrine of sin and our fallenness and our selfishness affect my understanding of it? Thirdly, Jesus has come to do something about sin. So we always want to look at every issue. How does the work of Christ, how does the power of the cross, how does the lavish grace of Jesus change or help or mitigate that specific issue? And then finally, is there some aspect of this issue uh, in the new heavens and the new earth? Recreation. And it looks like they've got one chance at marriage. As I read, um, as I read the Bible, I, it doesn't look like there's going to be marriage in heaven. So we get one chance at this. <laughs> we got, we got to make it good, don't we? Okay. So those are the, that's one assumption. A biblical vision of anything is seen through this lens. And number two, fuzzy vision produces frustration. This is a thesis I'm working on. Most marriages lack a clear vision of what they're trying to accomplish, so they accomplish little more than what happens when you shoot from the hip. Now, this would be me when I got married. I didn't read books on marriage. I didn't see counselors on marriage. I just shot from the hip. Oh, I got this. I got this, right? And when you try to pull off relationship on your own terms and your own strength, you're, you're, uh, you're running against this fact. Number one, your strengths are too weak for you, your weaknesses are too strong for you. You can't shoot from the hip. Marriage is too hard. Anytime you put two sinners under one roof, seeking to live together in intimacy, human beings can't pull that off in their own strength, on their own way. They simply can't do that. Okay? Those are my, uh, those are my two assumptions. And I'm going to move on to the series of questions that we'll spend the rest of the course asking, unless you wanted to make any comments on A and B under Roman numeral number one. Anybody like me, they started marriage shooting from the hip, just kind of, I'm going to, yeah. Just me and Janice and Radu. <laughs> And again, look, this, this course really should be marriage. Trial and error. Most of Mike's errors. Don't try these. <laughs>
And I do have some accountability because my wife of 40 years is sitting right here, so I can't say anything that, that isn't true. So, number one, number one, this is helping you craft a vision for gospel-centered marriage. Number one, do you wholeheartedly accept the gift of marriage on God's terms versus your own? Why would we even ask that question, beloved? Somebody answered. This is not a rhetorical question. Why are we even asking that question? Anybody? Why are we even asking the question, do you accept the gift of marriage on God's terms versus your own? Why do you even need to ask the question? There are lots of different definitions of marriage floating around out there. So we need to know really how to define the word. And where do we get that from is the question. Good. How do we define marriage? Which one are we going to choose? Excellent. So, um, let's tease out then the fact that number one, Marriage is a gift of God. God invented it. It's his gift to you, giving the other to you for his glory and your good. And so you see these words in Genesis where God put Adam to sleep. He took a rib, closed up the flesh at that place. He fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. And it says he brought her to the man. This is likely a pre-incarnation theophany of Jesus. This is likely Jesus in the Garden of Eden walking Eve to Adam. It's the first wedding. The first wedding was an outdoor wedding. Any of you have an outdoor wedding? All right. There you go. You have good precedent. First wedding in history, an outdoor wedding. What do you think Jesus is saying to Eve as he's walking her to Adam? As he's walking her down the aisle. What do you think he's saying? Well, just guess from the way I framed it. He's saying, Eve, Adam is my gift to you. He's my gift to you. And as, as, as Jesus gets down there and there's Adam, he looks at Adam and Adam says, whoa, man. <laughs> I stole that from R.C. Sproul. Not funny? Funny? Whoa, man. Woman? You know. <laughs> so, Jesus looks Adam in the face. He's got Eve on his arm and he says, Adam, this is my what? Good for you. The moment you forget that, you're starting down a treacherous trail. Right? You're frustrated with your spouse, blah, blah, blah. Stop and go, no, no, this is Jesus' gift to me. She's a gift to me for my good and God's glory. Let me tease out three simple implications of that. Number one, for marriage to work, the gift must be accepted on God's terms. Number two, the gift giver must be in the middle of the relationship. The fact that Jesus brings Eve to Adam, I don't think he wants to go anywhere. There is a third person critical to your marriage. That is Jesus. If Jesus isn't in the middle of it, if Jesus isn't defining it, Jesus isn't, ultimately, as we'll see, the source of your first joy, this isn't going to work. Jesus has to be in the middle of your relationship. Third implication, stay humble and be thankful. So this is the only illusion I'll make. I won't do it in the service, but my Virginia Cavaliers won the national championship in basketball <laughs> on Monday night. They had bets over and under. How long is it going to take Mike to mention this? 
So, but what did their coach, Tony Bennett, who's an extremely committed Christian, he goes to the PCA Church in Charlottesville, what did he tell his players after the game? He said, look each other in the eye and, stay, and say, stay humble and grateful. That's the kind of man Tony Bennett is. Those are really good words for husbands and wives. Stay humble. This is God's gift. And grateful. You don't deserve this gift. You don't deserve your spouse. Stay humble and grateful. Okay, I'll never mention the Bahamas again. There we go. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, with apologies. Of course, a year ago I wasn't saying anything about Virginia. <laughs> Not a peep. What do we mean by God's terms? The goal of marriage was one flashness. I'm going to tease that out a little bit later. But that tells you what? You can sit down at any time with your spouse and say, Honey, are we achieving the fundamental biblical goal of this relationship? Are we experiencing one fleshness? Now, we'll, again, we'll define that subsequently, but that's the goal. One fleshness. Secondly, the beauty of Adam and Eve's persons was the image of God. There are moral splendor more stunning than the physical beauty. We're Adam and Eve, as far as we can tell, you know, a ten. Were they each a ten? I would think so. I would think so. But the ultimate thing that made them stunningly attractive was they were made in the image of God. And that image was reflecting perfectly without sin. Perfectly. That's what made them absolutely beautiful. Third, their responsibility to, be, to have stewardship, to be caretakers and multipliers on the earth. This means that our single brothers and sisters are, can also be involved in this. While they might be not multipliers on the earth, they join the rest of us in being caretakers for the earth, the cultural mandate. Single or not, together we are extending the reign of God on this earth in the cultural mandate. Fourth, there's an implicit principle in God's created order. And that is, for life to work, something must be killed. So here's the Garden of Eden. What do we know about the Garden of Eden in terms of before the fall? The Garden of Eden is pristine, it's pure, everything's perfect. There's a probation given to Adam and Eve. Guys, enjoy me, live under my reign. Just do one thing I'm not. Enjoy everything, just do one thing. Just don't eat of that tree, and everything will be fine forever. By virtue of that command, that meant there's a principle inherent in a, a, uh, a, an unspoiled creation, a principle that for life to work, something must be killed. In this case, they must kill any propensity in them, any desire to disobey God and eat of that tree. Right? For life to work, something must be killed. That's in a... In a, uh, in a Perfect, pristine creation. For life to work, something must be killed. You know the rest of the story. They rebelled against God. The principle is still in effect. For life to work, what now must be killed? Sin. And again, when, when the liar came, when Satan came, lying and deceiving and tempting, what should they have done? Killed him. Killed the lie or killed the serpent. Get out. You've got no place here. You liar! They didn't do that. So now we're all under the dominion of darkness until we're transferred from that kingdom into the kingdom 
of light and the beloved son. So for life to work, for relationship to work, something must be killed. What is it? Sin. Sin left unchecked eventually ruins relationships like letting a pound of air out of your tires once a week. Eventually, 30 weeks later, you got flat tires. And I fear that many, many marriages aren't totally flat, but they're like 10 pounds of air and you're just kind of... But not experiencing the buoyancy, the inflated joy that God has for your marriage. So that means for relationship to work, sin must be killed. You can't not, you can't not deal with sin in your marriage. So here's an irony. Life in marriage comes from death. Death to sin. Uh, Dave Harvey, I believe he pastored over in um, Gaithersburg at one of the Sovereign Grace Churches. Dave Harvey wrote a book on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do. And he uses this wonderful quote from Thomas Watson. He's one of our um, wonderful forefathers in the faith. Thomas Watson said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Isn't that great? Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. He parlays that into this statement on marriage. When sin becomes bitter, marriage becomes sweet. Whose sin? Your own. Now, naturally, you're going to find your spouse's sin more bitter than your own. And that's a really good guarantee you're going to go down this track. But when your sin is more bitter to you than your spouse's, and, this is important, and you are going to Jesus for that sin and experiencing the sweetness of his love, now you've got a fighting chance in your marriage. But let's be warned. Marriage will not work unless sin is being put to death. Start with yourself. Start with yourself. Marriage done on God's terms, for His glory. God invented marriage to glorify Himself. So the unity in human relationships, not least in marriage that God is looking for, glorifies God how? It is a reflection in the physical world of what is unseen in the spiritual world, and that is the glory of the unity that exists in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ever delighting in one another. Pure, unbridled love. God says, I want that scene somehow on this earth in the unity of a marriage relationship. They're utterly committed to each other, right? Of course the Godhead is. And in the relationship, two people utterly... And it can happen in our friendships as well, but specifically in marriage. The glory of God, the unity that God had reflected in our marriages, and then you probably know from Ephesians 5, our marriage is to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. That means your marriage is not first about either of you. In Ephesians 5, Paul calls it a mystery, because in the garden this fact was hidden. Now it's revealed in the New Testament. Okay? The fact, it's a, Paul calls it a mystery that uh, this kind of marriage reveals the glory of Jesus' love for the church. It isn't evident in the garden. It becomes evident through the New Testament. So ask yourselves, is our relationship on a Christ-exalting trajectory or a relationship-exalting trajectory? And that's going to require a lot of prayer, isn't it? A lot of thought, a lot of putting the brakes on. 
Are we primarily seeking our own happiness or Christ's glory? I, I entered marriage seeking, I was a Christian, but I entered marriage seeking my own happiness. And if I do, I'll find neither my own happiness nor Christ's glory. Seek, seek to glorify Christ, you'll get that, and your happiness is God chooses to give it to you. If the Lord should be pleased to give you by His grace a deeply, deeply enriching and satisfying marriage, it will be solely due to His goodness and mercy. Stay humble and grateful. Thoughts before we move to the second question raised in a series of questions to help you tease out a vision for a gospel-centered marriage. Got to do it on God's terms. And they're good terms. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Number two, what are the principal reasons you chose your spouse? So for those who are married, I'm asking you to look back, think back to when you were dating and you made that decision, let's get engaged, let's get married. What were the reasons driving that? For those of you who aren't married, the question becomes this. Why do you want to marry this person? Why do you want to marry this person? There are many ways to answer this question from the crafts fame and fortune, to the more thoughtful. They make me a better person. Let me just tease out two to contrast where we tend to fall off the horse or where we tend to stay on it for our own good. Number one, what I'll just call sketchy reasons. We tend to fall in love because of what it does for us. Anybody know the song by the Cow Sills, The Rain in the Park and Other Things, late 60s? Wonderful song, very catchy. I saw her sitting in the rain, raindrops falling on her, flowers in her hair. Here we go. And I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew she could make me happy. What is that? Is that love? No, that's just selfishness. I knew she could make me happy. She exists for my happiness. That is not love. <laughs> so most love songs, just pick any love song. They're all basically saying the same thing. I love how you love me. It's all about me. That reflects the propensity of the human heart to have a basically self-serving view of marriage. I'm in this for what it can do for me, how you make me feel. So the world's way of love is this. I like what I get from you and I'll stay as long as I get it, but when it stops, I'm leaving. So the world's view of love is very conditional. As long as I get what I like, I'm in it. If not... I'm leaving. The biblical model of love is the promise of future love. I will be there uh, tomorrow. Anybody know Stephen Curtis Chapman's song, I Will Be There? It's a little sappy, but it really captures. Nobody knows Stephen Curtis Chapman? Sappy, but good, right? That's the spirit. Right? When the mirror tells us we're older, right? I'll be there. So, um, biblical marriage is bracketed by a commitment, I'm not leaving. And that creates a place within, a place for creative conflict to take place, knowing we have to resolve this. So it's really like, you know those times you're sitting in a, you've had a disagreement, a tiff, you're in a car, you can't go anywhere. You're looking out the window. You've done this, right? You're looking out the window. Mm -hmm. You're stuck. You're stuck. So God, God, God uh, creates these walls of commitment so that, knowing conflict's going to take place, 
it forces you to deal with your conflict. It's a safe place, as it were, to disagree, to discover your sin, etc. These walls of commitment secure a place for creative conflict. Divorce is not an option. One time, years ago, our one of our we were going together somewhere in our van, and Janice and I were having one of those public disagreements in front of the kids, and. Uh, and one of our kids is sitting in the middle seat going, divorce, divorce, divorce. You know, now we're mad not only at each other, but we're mad at him. And, you know, and here's the strange thing. He never heard us use that word to describe our relationship. Never. The D word has never been on the table. It's not an option. So it's like, oh, I guess he learned it at school. But he never heard Janice and I and I'm a, you know, I've been a pastor for all these decades, and I've met with Christians who throw the D word out there like it's this. Op- now look, there are cases where a biblical divorce can be can be sued for. There are desertion and adultery are standards allow that. That's one thing. But for people who are just having a little tiff, to use the word D as an option, it's not an option. So Janice needs to be able to wake up in the morning knowing Mike's not leaving. Even if I happen to disagree with them or I have to correct them or we're not getting along. He's not, she, she shouldn't ever fall asleep wondering, am I going to wake up with the, right, is it the Wichita lineman? Sorry, all, all my songs come from the 60s. With, with the note on the pillow that says, I'm gone. No, we're going to work through our conflict. Maybe the Wichita lineman was the earliest. That's by the time I get to Phoenix. That's by the time I get to Phoenix. Thank you, brother. There we go. <laughs> Glenn Campbell, same singer, Glenn Campbell. Or no, Campbell. Good. Now I'm oldest. Okay. Sketchy reasons. Sanctifying reasons. When you say I want to marry you, apart from natural reasons of attraction, you should be physically attracted to that person, and friendship. It is always best to marry your best friend. Never harmful if you happen to think they're pretty or handsome. You're saying this. You're the person I want God to use in my life to make me more like his son. I am a broken sinner. I invite you into my junk to help me be healed of it. You'll know me like no one else and will help me see myself in a way I've never seen myself. But I trust that you will do that gently and humbly. Likewise, I'm called into your heart to help you with the same. Because marriage is a major instrument God uses to sanctify us, to smooth out the rough edges, that is, to expose our pride and self-centeredness. Make no mistake, that's what marriage does. It exposes pride and self-centeredness. God uses an intimate ally in this work. That's why trust is critical, because you're going to tell me I'm wrong, and I don't naturally want to hear that. And only if I deeply believe you have my best interests at heart, and not first your own, will I be willing to be vulnerable and humble. Okay, so marital happiness, how well you manage sin. Basically, marriage is about how well do you manage sin. Your own, sin in the other. How well do you manage it? Poorly managed sin, this is what you get. Bad. Okay? So we've got to become good at managing sin. Thoughts, questions, observations before I move on to question number three. Number three. What kind of sinner do you want to marry? Now, who's saying looking for love in all the wrong places? Martin Patty Wilson? Okay. Ronnie Wilson. All right. What do I mean? 
So by virtue of the fact that God made you for the Garden of Eden, who are you intuitively looking for when you want to go marry another person? What are you looking for? You're looking for a flawless Adam or a flawless Eve. You want to marry a sinless person. You want to marry someone who will meet all of your desires and needs perfectly without any hassle. That's what you want. That's okay, as it were. That's what you were created for. Don't apologize for that. The only problem is that person doesn't exist. This side of the fall. So you need to adjust your expectations. And guess what? You're not that person. I might want to marry an Eve without sin, but I am not an Adam without sin. I'm an Adam with a whole lot of sin. Be humble and grateful. So, what kind of person do you want to marry? We all want to marry a perfect person who will flawlessly meet our every need. Again, let's think about what frustrates you in your relationship. You're not getting what you want. Isn't that proof? Unfortunately, there are only sinners to marry in this life, and you are one of them, but don't you know that? You expect to marry a perfect person. Do you expect to be perfect yourself? So let's tease it out here. All right, any, anybody say goodbye to this diagram? There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are big sinners and know it. Those who are big sinners and don't know it. Big sinner, know it. Big sinner, doesn't know it. What kind do you want to be married to? You want to be married to the kind that knows they're a big sinner, right? If you're married to someone, someone look, everyone's a big sinner. Everyone is. If you don't know it, you're going to be treacherous to live with. Among those who know they're big sinners are those who are doing something about it and those who are not doing something about it. Would you like to be married to a person that knows they're a big sinner but is doing nothing about it? Would you like to be married to that person? That'd be a living hell. Right? You know you're a big sinner, you're doing nothing about it. What arrogance, what pride. The relationship's going to be all about them. You're going to be walking on eggshells. This is an ant gong that one. Among those in the world who know they're big sinners and are doing something about it are those who are using the law as the primary answer to their uh, sin or those who are using the gospel. What do I mean? Someone who knows they're a big sinner, they're doing something about it, but their fundamental solution to their sin is the law. It means their basic attitude towards life is, I need to do the right thing, I need to obey the rules, I need to try my hardest, I need to buck up, and so do you. So you don't want to live with a person, do you, who knows they're a big sinner, is doing something about it, but its fundamental approach is, well, you settle this problem by getting your act together. And if you don't get your act together, shame on you. Do you want to look at the person who's always casting dispersions and shame on you? And we know that the, the law is not the first answer to the problem of our sin. It's Jesus. So, among those who are, don't you want to be married to a person who knows they're a big sinner, they're doing something about it, they're using the gospel for their sin, and just to tease us out one more step, and this is a failure I see in my own life, there are those who are using the gospel basically for themselves or using the gospel for the other. The nature of grace, the nature of the power of the cross, is it never goes anywhere and sort of stays there. Yes, I need grace in my heart, 
But when it's truly received, it always bounces out and creates other-centeredness. A true experience of the love of Jesus, a true experience, always issues in a Christ-like compassion, patience, love, sincere desire for the welfare of the other person. So I, I, I'm not getting the gospel just so I can say, oh, I'm so happy in Jesus' love for me. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus' love for me, the power of the cross to forgive me, issuing in, for, and this is the way Paul reasons it, right? As Christ has loved you, so you love one another. As so, as so. Questions about this? What kind of sinner do you want to be married to? What kind of sinner are you? Time check. Can somebody give me a time check? We got Judy. 10 06. 10 06, thank you. Questions? Thoughts, Nate? I think we have to be careful. The, the context of all of this is to believers that are married. Yes, it is. We have a lot of cases where someone came to faith later, later they're already married, or you have a case where someone's spouse just decides I don't want to be a believer anymore. And so. We have to be careful as they put the context that we put all of this in because there's still goals of marriage for them when your spouse is not a believer. And so yes. it doesn't mean that you're... Like, all, all of this is great if you have two believers, but there's a lot of people that don't have that. Yeah. And so what's that supposed to look like? And if we say that your marriage is not a success, if Jesus isn't in it, well, there's... What, people might not have a motivation to say, well, I shouldn't be in this, or any Good. number of things. So I think we need to keep that perspective in mind as we go through all these things, that there's marriages that don't fall into this paradigm. Yeah. So I am, thank you, I am speaking to what I assume, and this isn't everybody, that are two, two believers. Thank you. And there's a greater context. Greg? I mean, this is a, to me, this is a descriptive paradigm, right? It still exists if the other person isn't a believer, right? It's just they won't, they may not know they're a big sinner, and yeah. they will not, right? And you won't be able to exhort them to do these things either. Right. Right. So that's right. The corrective actions are different. Right. But that doesn't let you off the hook if you're the drag leader. It doesn't. It just sets the example. Yes. Set an example. That's right. Well, the Bible says that the unbelieving, the, the believer spouse sets the unbelieving The unbeliever spouse. And I'm sitting here, this is this chat, and I was a believer, but I'm also thinking about friends and family that they chose. To marry the sinner that they know. They chose to marry an unbeliever. And there are consequences that come with that. It's, yeah. it's, it's very clear and it sucks sometimes. But you know, yes. try to make before. Yeah. And sometimes you are, yeah, Nathan has a point, sometimes you do become a Christian after you were married. And, and I, I guess that's what Paul says that. that Follow the other one and set an example. Yeah. It's harder. Trust me. So let's finish with um, thank you all. What is your fundamental approach to life? I'm just stealing this from Tim Keller's preaching. Since we're talking about sinners, among us sinners, there are essentially three ways to approach life. One, be your own person. He calls this the progressive. This person is self absorbed and self reliant. Everything must be about them. Their spouse existed to fulfill their dreams. They want to be served. You can name the name of Christ and still functionally live this way. You can still functionally live this way even though you name the name of Christ. 
to be a good person. This person sees himself as basically good. Bad people are broken. They relate to others based on the law. They tend to be demanding and judgmental. And thirdly, be humbled by grace. And B is the legalist, the moralist. Be humbled by grace to see the Christian. This person knows they're broken. They're desperate for grace. Because they know that left to themselves, they will inflict injury on others. So they seek grace, are humbled and grateful to receive it, and are serious about pursuing life controlled by the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of love, patience, compassion, etc. So, and I, you know, we probably we probably can drift between these even in our Christian experience. We sometimes can act more like a moralist than not. Sometimes act more like a, 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 a be our own person than not. But where we want to land our feet for the sake of our marriages and the glory of God is be humbled by grace. Maybe I've got what i got. Five more minutes. Five more minutes. Let's, let's move into number five. Give you something to think about then. For a week, are you convinced that humility is the indispensable ingredient for marital harmony? I am. I, I just, I don't think really anything in the Christian life works without humility, and not least marriage. Marriage is plagued by this, uh, from the start, by this fact. What most beautifies us, humility, we least desire. What most soils our hearts, pride, we least detect. As a rule, because of the nature of indwelling sin, we least desire humility, and pride is something we least detect. We tend to hide from ourselves our pride in the way it works. So when you consistently ask yourself, are you ready to change the way you view yourself? So when you get married, you're going to have to view yourself in a new way. Because you're going to see stuff you never saw. What are you repenting of on a regular basis? What would the humble person be repenting of on a regular basis? Their pride. Oh, that was selfish. Oh, that was self-promoting. Oh, that was self-justifying. So that's a really healthy place to be, to recognize those things, because unchecked, what are those things going to do to the relationship? Kill it. You either kill that or they kill the relationship. Um, what do you want your spouse repenting of? Not loving you perfectly. <laughs> Being facetious. So, are you repenting of thoughts such as any other man or woman would love to be married to me? Really? Um, what do you like in your marriage to Jesus? So one person told me years ago, the way you treat your spouse is essentially the way you treat God. Because, you know, they come from the same organic heart. The way you treat your spouse is the way you treat God. Something to think about. Therefore, are you planning to struggle together against sin, starting with yourself? Will you start all criticism of the other with this conviction? My sin against God is far worse than anyone's sin against me. Will you be honest about the log in your own eye, being suspicious of your own motives, inspecting your own sin, before you seek to take the speck out of the other's eye? That's that whole paradigm in Matthew 7. Why do you see their speck, but you're blind to your own log? How can we be blind to our logs and be good uh, speck seekers? Pride. So you're really never healthy helping another one with their sin till you see your own logs. So you ask the question, am I 
ruthlessly as critical of myself as I am of other people. If you're not, don't go criticizing. You won't get the right answers. You won't see clearly. Am I more interested in helping them or condemning them? And look, if you're interested in helping people, you need to help them see their sin. That's part of it. That's love. You can't not deal with sin in the relationship. That wouldn't be loving. So then, considering how pride and humility are contrasted, and maybe we'll end, is it quarter after now, Rock? Uh, almost. Almost. Let's see. You can, st- you can study these on their own. I'll just say these, and then we'll be finished. The humble don't want to be proud. The proud don't want to be humble. The humble see their pride, and they loathe it. The, pride, the proud see humbling and loathe it. The humble don't recognize their humility as a rule. As a rule, the proud don't recognize their pride. The humble boast in their weaknesses. The proud despise their weaknesses. The humble long for what God wants. The proud long for what they want. The humble weigh their impact on others. The proud weigh others' impact on them. The humble sorrow for their lack of gratitude. The proud seek gratitude from others. The humble look to God for help. The proud help themselves. The humble can initiate critical self-evaluation. The proud avoid it but criticize others. The humble grieve over their own faults. The proud obsess over others' faults. The humble are content to promote others. The proud long to be promoted. The humble see all possessions as a gift. The proud feel entitled to their possessions. And the humble know they fare better than they deserve. The proud think they deserve better. So think about those things. Try to locate where you are and ask Jesus to move you from the proud to the humble side. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their interest in this subject. Would you satisfy their desire to know more, to see their relationships more mirror the glory of the unity in the Godhead and the glory of Jesus' love for his church? Now equip us with your spirit to worship you, to bring you honor and glory and praise, something of the adoration that is due you in our our service together. Care for, help, and heal our marriages. For Jesus' sake, amen. See you next week. We'll pick up right here.